The community sort of breaks into two halves. There are those who, on the other hand, there are people who, the most interesting thing I know about our planet is it's not necessarily negligible, but it's not the only show in town. Welcome to the 17th episode of Apple Finch Pudding, your gateway into the world of science. Today's scientist is Andrew Knoll, Fisher Professor of Natural History and Professor of Earth and Planetary Sciences at Harvard University. Welcome, Andrew. Thank you. Nice to be here. I'm going to dive right in. So actually, do you have a fun science fact for our listeners? Well, I don't know if it's fun, but I would say the, the most interesting thing I know about our planet is that it records its own history. So when, you know, all of us, if we go to the Grand Canyon, we see this beautiful, beautiful scenery, but geologists also see chapters in a history book. And basically, if you know how to look at it, pretty much every rock and every cliff and every mountainside on Earth tells part of our planet's history. And to me, that's that's exciting. That sounds very exciting. What are some of the things that you can take out of those logs? Okay, well, um, if you look at sedimentary rocks, that is things like sandstones, which harden from sands, or shales, which harden from muds, or uh, limestones, uh, they have physical properties that tell us something about the physical environment at the time they were deposited. They have chemical properties that tell us something about the you know, the chemical environment at the time they were deposited. And they often have some biological information that tells us something about the biota at the time they were deposited. And if we can order these in terms of time, which uh, geologists have learned to do using the advantages of radioactive decay, um, you can actually put together a history, uh, really the intertwined history of Earth and life through time. You've already touched on it. So you have also that link with biology. And in terms of biology, let's start at the beginning. There are a lot of different theories for the origin of life. Um, what do you think is the most most plausible theory for that or for the origin of life? Yeah, that, that's a good question. I, I think most scientists would agree that somehow physical processes gave rise to what we would now recognize as as biology. Um, there was a famous experiment done when I was about two years old by a man named Stanley Miller, uh, in which he showed that by just running a spark, which was his proxy for lightning, through a mixture of gases, simple gases, uh, methane, carbon dioxide, water vapor, ammonia, that he would actually be able to, he was actually able to make things like amino acids, which are the building blocks of, of proteins. And over the years, a, a much richer sense of how physical processes can give rise to the building blocks of, of organisms, not just proteins, but nucleic acids like DNA and lipids like the membranes in your, in your body. And so, in, in a sense, I think there's broad agreement that under the right physical conditions, it's almost expected that we would see this kind of chemistry happen. Then the community sort of breaks into two halves. There are those who really think that replication and and heredity was was the most important thing. And they have focused on nucleic acids for the simple reason that uh, not so much DNA, but its cousin RNA, uh, both carries information and can act like a catalyst uh, in some biological reactions, the way we asso usually associate with, with proteins. And so there's been a lot of work pushing that idea forward, and, and it's gone pretty far. On the other hand, there are people who think that metabolism, that is how an organism extracts carbon and energy from its environment, would have been first. And again, there's been a lot of progress in understanding how certain physical environments, like hot springs on the seafloor, um, might have given rise to that chemistry. I think right now we're at sort of an impasse because to really make something that I think we would all be comfortable calling calling life, 
you would really like to see those two sets of processes interacting with each other. Uh, we're not there yet, but just in the last year or two, there have been some very interesting ideas. I, I think maybe the most interesting one comes from Germany, where it's been proposed that uh, features called coenzymes, which are small organic molecules that are usually seen as helpers to help proteins do their job. What's interesting about a lot of these coenzymes is that they have a, 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 a chemistry that's somewhat, at least broadly similar to nucleic acids. And so perhaps in a historic sense, we've been seeing this backwards, that coenzymes are not the helpers of proteins, but proteins evolved to stabilize and, and make the work uh, better that, that the coenzymes were doing. So that's pretty much where we stand. A lot of progress over the last 50 years, some huge hurdles to before we can say we really understand it. So there's actually the Miller-Urey experiment uh, shows those development of, of uh, amino acids and that can actually agree with an RNA world that uh, doesn't contradict each other. No, it, 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 because we know that other things were being made. We, we know that the, the bases that are found in uh, DNA, the sugars that were found in, in there, the phosphate groups would have been available. So, there's no shortage of potential chemistries, uh, some of which probably interact. And, and I, again, my sense of of the field, I, I don't do active research in this field, but my sense of my friends who do is that they are moving as fast as possible toward trying to understand the interactions in on an early Earth that probably had both simple nucleic acids and peptides, things made of amino acids. We also have found some amino acids on, on meteorites. Mm -hmm. Does that mean that panspermia is probable or do you think life originated on Earth itself? I think it's most likely that life originated here. Um, you're, you're absolutely right that there's a whole class of meteorites called carbonaceous chondrites, and they can have 10% organic matter in them. Uh, there's a complex chemistry went on in their parent bodies. Uh, something like 70 different amino acids have been identified, most of them having nothing to do with the amino acids we have on Earth. So rather than interpret those as simply saying that life was somehow seeded here from somewhere else, I think their major message is that the kind of chemistry that Stanley Miller and others envisioned for the early Earth is actually a chemistry that may have gone on widely in the early solar system and may go on widely in other solar systems. So, so that actually suggests that the origin of life is not of might might not be a rare event. It might be common practice. Yeah, I mean that that's a possible implication. I mean, we're we're essentially extrapolating from a sample of one when we talk about life. We we have no evidence of life anywhere else, but what are thinking about the origin of life on earth and things like carbonaceous meteorites suggests that earth is probably not unique in having a chemical makeup that gave rise could have given rise to life uh the hard part is actually demonstrating that that's true and how would you define life that's probably not an easy question but i i've talked to another uh, professor um, adam roddy and he defined it as like the information matter energy nexus, some combination of that. Do you agree with that or do you have some insights? Um, I, I think that's that's reasonable. Uh, my favorite definition of life is one that was put forward by a person named Jerry Joyce at the, the Scripps Institute in, in California. And Jerry defined life as a self-replicating chemical system capable of Darwinian evolution. And what I like about that is it's very hard for me to think of life taking root uh, in the absence of evolution. So I, I do like, you know, whatever else you want to say about that's sort of descriptive. I, I, I think the idea that uh, in order to have living things and in order to have biosphere on another planet, you would have to have evolution. So evolution is, is key to have sustainable life. 
Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I always tell my students that if you go back three billion years ago and look at a quartz crystal and a bacterium, you know, three billion years later, quartz crystals are still quartz crystals and bacteria, on the other hand, have evolved into many millions of different organisms, some of them very complex. So uh, that's the difference between things that do and do not evolve. When I was growing up and I studied, they all, I always learned that life evolved in the oceans, but they uh, I've heard some recent research that they say that life probably originated more like in pools on the land surface because you have like more interaction with molecules. Is it more probable to originate on, on those kind of surfaces? Yeah, it, it's an interesting question. And of course, the short answer as it is for all of these questions is we, we don't know. But there are reasons to like lakes. And you, you may know that a famous letter that Darwin wrote you know, over 100 years ago, he talked about what if in a warm little pond, this chemistry could could happen. I, I think a lot of people like ponds for two reasons. One is the one you said that you can get a higher concentration of organic molecules. And the other is that they can wet and dry and wetting and drying seems to be very good for catalyzing more complex uh, the formation of more complex organisms. Now, the, the, I always have to represent the loyal opposition who look at, who think that the kind of metabolism first kind of chemistry is more likely to have happened at say, let's say a deep sea hydrothermal vent. And while these people argue with each other all the time, my take is that they should go to Iceland because there the Mid-Atlantic Ridge, which is a big hydrothermal system essentially comes right up to sea level and is sitting underneath lakes. So these are not totally distinct possibilities. In terms of life, we always include water. Do we actually need water to have the evolution of life or to have the origin of life? Again, the answer is in some ways we don't know. Uh, a number of people have written very compellingly about the properties of, of water, which is water a lot of what's interesting about water comes from the fact that it's what's called a polar molecule. So if you look at a molecule of water, you have oxygen and then two hydrogens, but the hydrogens and oxygens don't make a straight line. It looks more like Mickey Mouse ears. And because of that, there's a net positive charge on one side of the molecule and a net negative charge on the other. And for that reason, you know, water is liquid at a temperature uh, where you can have dissolved gases like CO2, ammonia, dissolved ions like carbonate ions and phosphate ions, sulfate, and that sort of thing. And it can be in intimate contact with, with uh, solids, you know, either organic molecules or, or calcium carbonate molecules. So water is special in, the, in, in that it is a particularly biofriendly medium. Now, People thinking about this theoretically have suggested that under some conditions, some organic molecules like formaldehyde and, and perhaps uh, ammonia would be capable of having similarly biofriendly uh, biofriendly attributes. On the other hand, most of those would occur on planets or moons that you know, would not have much in the way of physical surfaces, you know, there's, so I think at the end of the day, while we don't know whether water is uniquely able to sustain life, I, th I think that's our best bet. And this is why, you know, astronomers and planetary scientists who are looking beyond the earth, uh, focus in no small part on bodies that can have liquid water. You also have like the tectonic plates and mm -hmm. some water is now going back to the Earth's mantle, um, which means that there is actually less water now on Earth's surface than there used to be. Um, how much water would there be if all that water was on the surface? And also, can it, like on what timescale does it change? Can it be relevant for in terms of climate change or not really? I think it's a longer time scale than the kind of climate change that people are, for very good reasons, worried about now. Um, there's some recent work actually by uh, a colleague of mine at Hartford named Rebecca Fisher. And 
her insight was that when the mantle, the, the big interior block inside the earth is warmer, it can actually hold less water. So there's reason to believe that the mantle was much hotter early in earth history than it is now, and it has been losing heat through time. Now, the reason that's important for this discussion is that there's reason to think that very early in earth history, much if not most of the water that was you know, in the crust and mantle was degassed out to the earth's surface. Um, and that that would have given an ocean, you know, add an extra ocean's worth of water to the uh, to that early ocean. And, you know, you'd have sea level being two kilometers higher than it is now. So there would be very little dry land, even with modern uh, so, sort of distribution of, of altitudes. And then what happens is that with plate tectonics, which does carry water back down into Earth's interior as, as part of the, the process, as the as the mantle cooled, it could carry, it could retain more of the water that came down. And so the two final things to say are one is that there's still a lot of debate on exactly how much water is in the interior of the planet, but many people at least agree there's probably at least an ocean's worth inside the planet and much of that was probably at the surface early on and then the final thing to say is that something that i have worried about through time is if you look at the geologic record it is quite consistent with the idea that the early earth was a water world probably had volcanoes sticking out and maybe some small bits of continent but that the ex emergence of continents and the transition to a world that looks a little bit more like the one we have today, that happened over a billion years or more. Okay, yeah, so it's a really long time scales. Absolutely. Well, you said that there's water in the mantle of Earth. There is no water in the core, right? Is, is that because of the heat? Yeah, I, I think most people agree that the Earth has this layered structure with the core in the middle because as it formed, there were two sources of heat. One is what's called heat of accretion, just by having all of these blocks uh, agglomerate together. And also there would have been much more radioactive decay at that time. And so the interior of the Earth became hot enough basically to melt and so the heavy stuff, mostly iron, went to the center and think volatiles, things like water, would have gone toward the surface. So basically the things that make up the core and the things that made up, make up the early atmosphere were going in different directions. There's a lot of water also in, in minerals. And we also have found water in or those mineral structures in comets. So that actually implies that some water on Earth originates from comets and meteorites. How much of Earth's water is actually originating from those comets? Do you have some insights on that? Yeah, it, it's a good question. And there's reason to believe that the Earth accreted from predominantly certain types of meteorites, which still visit us from the outer solar system now and again. And those are important sources of water and carbon and nitrogen, all the things that make up the fluid and, and gaseous Earth at the surface. Now, one of those things is comets, which have been described as dirty ice balls sometimes, or dirty snowballs. Um, now, what's interesting is we can go to a detail of chemistry to evaluate the relative importance of meteorites and, and, and comets, and that is the isotopic composition of the things like hydrogen and oxygen that are in these bodies. Uh, so hydrogen, for example, comes in two different flavors. Most hydrogen just has a proton and no neutrons, but there is something called deuterium, which has a proton and a neutron. And using an instrument called a mass spectrometer, we can actually measure the relative abundance of those two isotopes. We have a good sense of what the bulk earth ratio of hydrogen to deuterium is, 
we have a good sense of what that is in meteorites. And remarkably, we have at least a number of observations now of, of uh, comets. And the reality is that at least those comets that we've been able to look at so far have an isotopic composition that suggests they can only be minor contributors to uh, you know Earth's water and and other things. So they're 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 playing a role, but arguably it's a role that's quite subordinate to that of meteorites. And they have some idea of size, like is it one percent or a lot smaller still? No, it could be ten percent, twenty percent, something like that. So it's it's not necessarily negligible, um, but it's not the only show in town. So now we have water in the world that we're describing. Um, at some point we had life in that water and uh, oxygen came to the playground, let's say. Often there's like talk of the great uh, oxidation or oxidation event, but it's more like a fluctuation event. C can you give us some more insights on that? Yeah, one of, one of the things that was just becoming clear to earth scientists, probably about the time I was in high school, was that on the early Earth, the atmosphere had little or no oxygen gas. And that's consistent with origin of life chemistry experiments, because if you try and put oxygen into the Miller-Urey experiment, it won't happen. So there's reason to believe that oxygen was not present. If you look at the evolutionary relationships among living microbes, it becomes pretty clear that microbes that use oxygen are descended from microbes that did not use oxygen. So it's a consistent inferential story. And geologists started looking at the chemistry and, and minerals of rocks and surface environments through time. And soon the, the geological story became clear that before about 2.4 billion years ago, there was not persistent oxygen gas in the atmosphere and surface oceans. Uh, a number of people have described what are called whiffs of oxygen, which mean that there could have been local production of oxygen, but it didn't last very long and certainly didn't transform the world. But beginning about 2.4 billion years ago, and, and potentially, as you say, sort of fluctuating for one or 200 million years before ending up with a world that had a permanently oxic surface, uh, that world change. And that, that may be the greatest environmental transformation in, in the history of, of the planet. Um, and if you ask, well, why did that happen? It's pretty clear that the only source of oxygen gas that is sufficiently large to account for the oxygenation of the atmosphere and oceans is photosynthesis, specifically what I'll call cyanobacterial photosynthesis because cyanobacteria are the one group of bacteria that photosynthesizes getting electrons from water and giving off oxygen as a byproduct. That's what plants do for the simple reason that the chloroplasts in the tree outside your, your home are actually descended from once free living cyanobacteria. They're sort of captured and reduced to metabolic slavery. So basically, you need that oxygen, but it may be a little more complicated in that there has to be a decisive interaction between the physical and biological world. Uh, most biological inferences called molecular clocks for the antiquity of cyanobacterial photosynthesis suggest that it originated hundreds of millions of years before the great oxygenation event. And that's consistent with now 30 or 40 reports of these local transient buildups of, of oxygen. And if that's correct, then we need something else to make the production of oxygen get large enough to transform the world. And, you know, that something else in an important way may have been the emergence of continents. It's on the right time scale. Uh, it would make, you know, put much more phosphate into the environment uh, uh, that would boost through nutrients, primary production by cyanobacteria and others. And so again, there's, uh, it's easy to get into an argument with other earth scientists about the causation. 
that it happened when it happened, that it had profound consequences for life and environments after that is agreed on, that it had to involve cyanobacteria is agreed on, and whether it represents the actual origin of cyanobacteria or whether cyanobacteria were minor players in earlier ecosystems, that's where people still argue. That's already a, lo a lot of interesting topics bound together. For example, the, the fact that you said that the uh, chemistry observed in the Miller-Urey experiment doesn't happen when there's oxygen, because it's probably because it's so reactive, but... Yeah, it would just oxidize everything, yeah. Yeah, right. but it is also more or less the key for the development of higher life on Earth. Yeah. So how do you see that interaction? Yeah, uh, so a lot of organisms, including you and me as, as we talk, uh, use oxygen and we get all the energy we need by using oxygen to break down organic molecules, something called aerobic respiration. Now, you can respire using materials other than oxygen, and lots of bacteria use sulfate in solution or oxidized iron or nitrate, but the energy yield from those reactions is fairly small. In contrast, since oxygen gas, O2, is such a strongly, probably the most strongly oxidizing compound likely to be important in the environment, uh, that yields much more energy from the breakdown of, say, one molecule of sugar. And so uh, it, it looks like the common ancestor of all so-called eukaryotic organisms, that is, organisms that have a membrane-bound nucleus like we do, but also many protozoans, algae, plants, fungi, uh, that that was capable of aerobic respiration. And again, we know why it's capable of that. And that's because in your body, within your cells, the organelles that actually do the work of respiration are called mitochondria. And they are also descended from once free living bacteria. So basically, you know, everything that's interesting about eukaryotes metabolically comes from bacteria. And once that originally symbiosis was in place, a number of things were possible. It became possible to specialize membranes because all of the metabolic activity was not being done on all the cell's membrane. That makes it possible for eukaryotes to have much more flexibility in cell shape and size. Uh, there was much more energy available. And so eukaryotic cells, we have evidence of them in rocks as old as say 1.7 to 1.8 billion years ago. So whether or not they are uh, an immediate consequence of the great oxygenation event is less clear, but that oxygenation event was probably necessary for us to get this whole new type of biology. Now, that said, uh, we have evidence of eukaryotes more than a billion years before we have evidence of complex, large organisms like animals. And interestingly, those we find our first geological evidence of those kinds of, of animals at about the same time as we see evidence for another increase in oxygen. So the great oxygenation event 2.4 to 2.2 billion years ago didn't give us the modern world. It gave us a world with probably a percent or two of present day oxygen levels in the atmosphere and surface ocean and no oxygen in the deep ocean. And it's really only about 600 million years ago that chemistry tells us that we're now living in a world that has somewhat more oxygen. And, you know, if you look in today's oceans where you can find oxygen gradients that go from fully oxygenated down to oxygen free, as you get to less and less oxygen, you have less and less animal activity, less and fewer and fewer small, large animals, and you get to a fairly low level, you know, this 1% or so, and you're, you're not going to see any animals in the fossil record at that. So it, it's look, it looks like the oxygen history of the Earth then may have the kind of a ziggurat-like thing that nothing for the first billion, billion and a half years of life 
then you get low but persistent levels of oxygen in the atmosphere and surface ocean. And only about 600 million years ago do we begin the transition to a more modern world. And that really is the framework within which the sort of large-scale patterns in evolution play out. And the importance of oxygen, um, is it also related to the production of ozone, actually? Yeah, oxygen has a number of interesting uh, consequences. One, of course, which we already mentioned, is that you can derive a lot more energy from respiration if you use oxygen. Two, uh, cyanobacteria are what I would call ecosystem engineers. That's an ecological term for organisms that modify their own environment for their own advantage. People always talk about beavers, but you know, once cyanobacteria started being major primary producers and generating oxygen within you know, the sunlit oceans, they basically scrubbed that surface seawater free of all of the alternative ways or you know, alternative molecules from which you can get uh, electrons for photosynthesis. So basically cyanobacteria kick all the other birds out of the nest uh, and, and basically make it hard to go back to that earlier world. And then the third thing is the one that you mentioned. Um, one of the reasons why we can happily traipse about on the Earth's surface today is that we have an ozone layer that actually screens out wavelengths of uh, solar radiation, ultraviolet radi radiation that are actually detrimental to nucleic acids. So, uh, and there's reason to believe that there that you don't need all that much oxygen to uh, generate a uh, uh, an ozone shield. And so probably since the great oxygenation event, we had something of an ozone shield. It's also fair to say that, you know, when I was a kid, people worried a lot about, you know, how life could exist on an early Earth without oxygen. Um, but in fact, you know, meter of water gets rid of a lot of that uh, uh, ultraviolet radiation uh, a millimeter or two of sand grains can be good. And a lot of bacteria have really, really remarkably efficient DNA repair mechanisms. So life was able to prosper before there was an ozone shield, but just like aerobic respiration, once you have it in place, new things become possible, including having big heterotrophs that exist on land, like us. The chemistry or the composition of the atmosphere has changed a lot over time. Uh, some of your research also focused on a large increase in carbon dioxide in the atmosphere that probably led to a major extinction. Can you give us some more insights on that? Yeah, um, you're absolutely right that uh, the Earth's environment is not constant through time. Uh, you know, if you went back to the early Earth, you would have had much more CO2, which you needed because there's reason to believe that the sun only had about 70% of its current luminosity. So you needed a lot of greenhouse gases to keep the planet from freezing over. And yet we have evidence of, of oceans back then. Um, but what you're asking about is something that is more recent and, and absolutely relevant to today, and, and that is 252 million years ago was the greatest mass extinction that we know of from the geologic record. It, it's estimated that something on the order of 90% of all species in the oceans disappeared over a short time scale. And this is something that I got involved in just by serendipity years ago. I was at a meeting and uh, one of my colleagues was giving a talk on this extinction. And he showed this picture of what I recognized as seafloor fans of calcium carbonate crystals, which were forming right at the time of the extinction. And he just mentioned this in passing as being interesting, but I got interested in it because that sort of feature is common in limestones deposited on the early earth, but becomes uncommon through time. So, a couple of us sat down and started thinking, well, 
what could account, you know, why might the physical oceans become transiently like the oceans of the early earth at the time of this extinction? And we had all sorts of ideas, most of which were wrong, but they all required that you have a rapid increase in CO2. And so my friend Vic Dick Bombach and I literally went to the library for three months and read a century old literature by physiologists of what happens to organisms when you impose high CO2 on them. And we developed a set of traits, if you will, that would make organisms either more tolerant or more vulnerable to a large CO2 increase. And that those turned out to be very good predictors of what actually happened uh, 252 million years ago. And we now know the culprit was massive volcanism, volcanism a million times ever bigger than anything ever seen by modern, modern humans. And that caused global warming. It caused the pH of the oceans to go down, something called ocean acidification. Um, because the oceans get much warmer, it's hard for them to carry oxygen. So you have the expansion of oxygen-free waters. Um, now, if you read the newspaper, those should be familiar because that's what's happening in the 21st century. And indeed, the, many of the vulnerabilities we're seeing in marine organisms right now are consistent with the kind of vulnerabilities that we saw 252 million years ago. So there's, there's a famous quote by the American novelist, uh, Mark Twain, that said, history doesn't often always repeat itself, but it often rhymes. And I think that there is a, th this major event in the history of life caused by volcanism does provide a distant mirror on what is happening to the earth today and suggests that you know, the world that our grandchildren may inherit could be quite different from the one we live in today, unless we have the will and resolve to do something about it. And we are already observing a, a mass extinction. So it, it, it is, it's not hypothetical. It is happening right now. And so, yeah, yeah, you can actually link it directly to that increase in, in carbon dioxide. Yeah. I mean, what's interesting is that there have been a, a lot of really good studies of just population sizes in different animal groups on land and in the sea. Um, and in most cases, over a period of the last 30 or 40 years, they've gone down significantly. Now, it has to be said that most of that is due to pollution, to uh, land use change, things like that. And that's not going away. But now, as you note, uh, climate change is really kicking in. Um, and that has huge consequences for all organisms, I, not least humans. I was just reading an article yesterday about the uh, sort of Indo-Ganges plains in India and uh, Pakistan. 700 million people live in the, those areas, most of them poor. And the number of heat waves in the summer has more than doubled if you compare the last 20 years to the final 20 years of the, the 20th century. And heat waves that are, you know, really um, harmful to people uh, are becoming more and, and more common. So it, it isn't, you know, we should worry about the corals, and, and I hope we will, but uh, there's reason to worry about people as well. Yeah, it's it's not only animals and plants. We have to look out of the other people as well, like you said. And yet, in terms of plants, plants take up part of this carbon dioxide, and you already mentioned it a few times. Um, so the chloroplasts of plants are actually incorporated cyanobacteria. Mm -hmm. Can you uh, tell us a little more about that? I have to say that the reason I became interested in the early history of life is that when I was an undergraduate at university, I had to write a paper for a botany class. And I ended up writing my paper on what was this controversial idea put forward by Lynn Margulis, 
uh, a biologist that the mitochondria and plastids originated as bacterial symbionts. Now, neither one of those ideas was original with, with Lynn. For example, a Russian named Konstantin Merchovsky suggested that the chloroplast originated as a cyanobacterium in the early 1900s, but they really didn't have the tools to test it. And Lynn rearticulated this idea at the time when cell biology and molecular biology were taking shape. And that allowed new kinds of tests. And basically, for those two organelles, they have passed every test. I don't think there's now any serious argument as to whether the chloroplasts originated as cyanobacteria and the mitochondria originated as what's called an alpha proteobacterium. We're made up of committees, basically. The link between geology and the existence or development of life that's actually your expertise, that, that link. So what are the major drivers for that link between life and geology? On different timescales, there there are, are different links. I think if we're thinking about the origin of life, um, you know, if, if you accept the idea that there were specific chemical processes that led to life, those chemical processes will only work in environments that have you know the right simple molecules that have uh energy sources available to them the absence of oxygen so yes i i think that it's important to understand that there is a physical framework within which uh life begins but as we've already talked about uh environments have changed through time they've changed on long time scales largely due to, I think, interactions between tectonics and, and the biota. And as we've already talked about, this great diversification of life to include complex animals and, and, and plants on land uh, resonates with that. Um, and then, as we've also talked about, there are short-term events uh, like massive volcanism, like a meteorite hitting the Earth 66 million years ago, and those can have detrimental effect and do have detrimental effects on the biota. So uh, what gets me up in the morning is simply the idea that every day, if I look, I will learn something new about this conversation between Earth and life that has basically, that's what has sustained life on this planet for 4 billion years. Maybe a small sidestep. The, we also have Earth's magnetism. Does that also play a role in the development of life or, on Earth? Well, in a, in a couple of ways. Uh, again, uh, because of the fact that we have a solid inner core and a liquid outer core around it that in, interact, uh, the Earth has developed a shield against a magnetic shield, and that keeps some types of potentially detrimental radiation from, from hitting the earth. I'd, I'd stop short of saying that without that, there could be no life, um, but it has certainly been an important part of uh, the environments that gave rise to and have sustained life through time on earth. And then it's worth noting that there are a lot of organisms on this planet that actually have mineral magnetite in them. You know, pigeons have uh, uh, carrier pigeons have magnetite in their brains. And so a number of organisms from bacteria to birds actually use Earth's magnetic field as a way of directing their movements. So it has a, a behavioral consequence as well. Earth's magnetism also flips, but yeah. how sudden is that flip? Well, we may actually be going through one right now. Um, it's It's fairly quick on a geologic time scale. Uh, and, and just to back up, you, the uh, once every several hundred thousand to maybe a million years, for reasons that are still argued about, the Earth's magnetic poles flip. And you know what was the North Pole becomes, in that violence, the South Pole, etc. And it seems to happen fairly quickly that the strengths of the magnetic field as it's 
being recorded by iron minerals declines. And then when it starts to build back up again, it builds up with this opposite polarity. Um, now, you might think that the times when we're switching from one to another, and therefore are times of this low magnetic uh, shield, that those would be times of major extinction, but no one has ever found any evidence that extinctions are clustered at times of uh, magnetic change. In fact, I think the most important role of Earth's magnetic field in uh, extinction happened because a man in 1980, a man named Walter Alvarez, was trying to establish the magnetic polarity of some, say, 90 to 50 million year old limestones in Italy. And as he, he ended up getting sort of sidetracked by a particular observation, which was the observation that a uh, 11 kilometer bolide hit the earth at the end of the Cretaceous period. So the, the magnetic field had nothing to do with it, but it's what got Walt to work on the, these beds that, you know, basically provide the keys to understand another major event in the history of earth and life. Maybe I'll go to life on other planets. And you said that magnetism is important. Does a, an external or an extraterrestrial or another planet actually, does it need magnetism to have life develop? My guess is it probably doesn't, but we, you know, again, we have this issue that we know of life in exactly one place in the universe. And we know the characteristics of that life. We know the history of that life. And so, you know, it's only human, if you will, to uh, use that as our guide to look, looking elsewhere. Now, some parts of that make real sense. Uh, you know, if NASA put me in charge of exobiological exploration, I, you know, I'd look for places where uh, temperature would be such that you could have liquid water. Um, I would look at places that have some sort of tectonics, so we have sources of, of, of energy. Um, but, you know, beyond that, I, I, I think as we explore the, the universe, we can only, certainly, exploration is really all we can do. And within our solar system, we can go to places. I mean, I've served on Mars missions, and, you know, it's amazing that we can actually do the same kind of work on Mars now that I've done on Earth for the last half century. Having said that, no one has as yet found any un unambiguous or even uh, exciting evidence for possible life on, on Mars. But we can look at Mars, we can look at the icy moons of Jupiter and Saturn uh, and see if we find evidence of extinct or, or living organisms. Gets a lot harder when you go to the rest of the universe. Uh, for nearby solar systems, we can look at planetary atmospheres. Now, there's a real question of whether there is actually anything that's truly a diagnostic biological signature in atmospheres, but something we can see. And with the new James Webb telescope, we can see a lot farther than we could in the past. But, you know, for most of the universe, the only way we'll ever know about, you know, life out there is if it tells us about themselves. So it's, uh, and, you know, it's, it's, it's an exciting question and anything is possible at this point. To go back to what we said before, you say oxygen is very reactive. Does it mean if we see or can observe oxygen in another planet that it's highly likely that there is life or can oxygen be created in another way as well? Well, there are ways of making a little bit of oxygen that uh, you can have water that uh, radiation, solar radiation breaks into oxygen and hydrogen. And if the hydrogen escapes, then the oxygen stays there. And, you know, there there is a little bit of oxygen uh, on the Martian surface, but it's very little. And that's an abiotic generation is uh, is reasonable for that. And so oxygen is kind of a, a two-edged sword in that if you see oxygen on a planet, then, you know, you might be able to have Klingons or something like that 
but you probably couldn't start life. So it, it would be fascinating to see if we, you know, what distribution of oxygen on different types of planets and moons will be like. But again, um, it's we're not yet at the post-speculation stage on what it would mean. Isa, the European Space Agency just launched its uh, JUICE mission yeah. to look for a life on the moons of Jupiter. Do you think that is a promising place to look? I, I think it's, you know, Jupiter and Saturn's moons are, I think, the most interesting, along with Mars, the most interesting targets uh, in the solar system. Um, you know, we have a, a number of these moons, Titan, Enceladus, but several others as well. Um, I, you know, I, again, I applaud the effort to go and characterize them. Um, if nothing else, they, they tell us something really important. And that is people who call themselves astrobiologists have thought in terms of the habitable zone for a long time. And the habitable zone is basically defined by uh, the zone around a star where you can have liquid water. And that was always thought of in terms of simply solar radiation. So Earth is within the habitable zone. You go you know, too much farther out and it's too cold, too much farther in, it's too hot. But what these moons tell us is because of their gravity um, interactions with their massive planets, friction inside the moons produces heat. And so we get a whole nother set of environments that have liquid water. And yeah, I'd like to know a lot more about those, those bodies. So I look forward to seeing what juice will produce. And when we look for extraterrestrial life, we often look for microbial life. Do you think there is a chance of finding complex life? It's possible. It's not going to happen in this solar system. But, um, you know, there's this whole question of is life common, is life rare? But what we have to keep in mind is, let's say only one planet in a million can give rise to life. Well, then there must be billions of bodies out there that have life. And if only one planet with life in a million gives rise to complex life, there have to be billions of planets and, and moons out there as well. Um, we don't know. I, I Just a, a shout out for a new book that I just read. Um, a very, very good science writer named Jamie Green has just published a book called The Possibility of Life, which you know explores this sort of what-if question uh, and and one of the things that I, I really enjoyed about this book is that, you know, people have thought about this for a long time. Uh, you know, we call them science fiction writers and filmmakers and that, but the good ones, and there are a lot of good ones, actually think about the possibility of life going from the framework of life as it exists on Earth. So... Yeah, there's there's all sorts of possibilities, and, and and you know they go from ET with its cosmic sweetness to the War of the Worlds where they're out to get us, and there's some interesting novels where, you know, there is a problem when civilizations meet, but the problem is one that we decimate uh, other civilizations out there. I, again, at, at this point, we don't know. And all we can do is devote some resources to exploration. I've also talked to Graham Lau, an astrobiologist, and he was convinced that there must be some tree-like structures on other planets because it's so efficient in photosynthesizing and working with oxygen and carbon. Do you have some insights on that? Do you agree or not really? I, I think there are things where that are maybe universal for life. I suspect that life is wherever it may exist, will be based on carbon. There aren't really a lot of uh, viable alternatives to that. Um, there will have to be energetics. And so the same kind of reactions that involve sulfate ions or oxygen gas with organic matter would, would play out there. There are bacteria that can use chemical energy to fix carbon, and as well as bacteria and other organisms that can use solar energy to fix carbon. So I, I think many of these things are, are possible. Um, I, I would simply point out 
that if you look at the history of life on this planet, we were more than 90% of the way through the history of life before there were trees. So life existed for a long time before there were trees. And, you know, life existed for nearly all of its history before there was technology that would, you know, in some ways make intelligent civilization something that might be something that you could see through through exploration or or, or other means. So the history of our planet suggests that, you know, some of these things may be probable in the long term, but if you look at a young planet, it may be simply too young to have had, had this history. Now, I should say that that history, as we've already talked about, is tied up with the history of oxygen, and that could be very different on another planet. But I think it is fair to, fair to say that humans have only come along in the last cosmic blink of an eye. Uh, and when you think about how much technology has changed since the origin of human civilizations, in fact, since I was a boy, it does make you think, you know, what, what will technology be like a thousand years from now? And that, of course, is a rich vein that, that fuels a lot of science fiction, the, the idea that other civilizations will be more ancient and therefore more sophisticated than ours. You know, they may or may not be, but uh, it just seeing how technology has has moved on an extraordinarily short time scale makes you think. You know. Isn't it also part of the, the the Fermi paradox that when civilization gets too developed, it actually inadvertently destroys itself? One possibility. The other, uh, again, one solution to the Fermi paradox is that civilizations may get smart enough that they don't want other civilizations to find them and so they don't they don't advertise themselves um so yeah again all all sorts of thing things are are possible there are multiple solutions for that one yeah. so if i understand correctly you don't really believe in silicon based life you're more or not believe but you think carbon based life is more probable i i, I think so for for a simple reason, and that is, if you look at the periodic table of the elements, silicon seems to be the most reasonable alternative to carbon because it sits right beneath it, has you know many of the same bonding opportunities. But nearly all of the silicon, certainly in our in our solar system and probably well beyond that, is primordially bound to oxygens to make silica. Quartz is SiO two. And basically, you know, silicate minerals, that is minerals made up of these SiO2 moieties, you know, that's the stuff of the crust and mantle. That's the stuff of Mars and the moon and things like this. So there's lots of silicon, but there is extraordinarily little silic silicon that is not deeply uh, complex with oxygen or in some cases carbon, silicon carbide, that kind of thing. So I think just in terms of environments, I, I put my money on carbon. Also, not that long ago, there was a paper that uh, discussed the occurrence of silica actually in glass and that it would be used in the Miller-Ur experiment as a catalyst for the development of those molecules. And I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, no, I, 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 there's a broader uh, idea there that, that really goes back decades, and that is different kinds of minerals. Many of them silicates, clay minerals, for example, uh, but also including things like fool's gold and pyrite, are known to catalyze the kind of reactions that... Uh, are thought to characterize the origin of life. So, so again, even at that level, uh, even though if you think carbon is the stuff of life, uh, its early chemistry is playing out in a silicon-rich environment. Before we round up, do you have a take-home message for our listeners? Well, I guess for my take-home message, I would go back to the idea that in Earth history, there are short-term 
environmental perturbations that have been uh, detrimental to life. And I think the message I'd have is that, you know, we're living in one of those times. Uh, and I, I tend to see the past a little bit like, you know, if you've ever read Charles Dickens, A Christmas Carol, uh, old Scrooge is visited by the ghost of Christmas yet to come. And, and the ghost doesn't say, this is what your future will be. What it says is, this is what your future will be if you don't change your ways. And I think that's what our planetary history is trying to tell us about the 21st century. That's something to think about. This was the 17th episode of Apple Finch Pudding. I want to thank Andrew Knoll for the information and let's meet again for the next episode of Apple Finch Pudding.